Episode 2. Now I'm really excited because um, if you've heard episode 1, you'll know that um, it's all about two songs, the body electrics pulsing and the car crash sets breakdown. So this is the lead guy from Car Crash Set. This is Nigel Russell and I'm a fanboy. So that's all I can say about it. So uh, Nigel is still part of the world of New Zealand music as a supplier and a sort of uh, smudgy guru of equipment. He's behind behind the scenes, um, supplying us with all the yummy, yummy equipment that makes making music so enjoyable. Here I am, I'm a fan. This is episode two of Unsung NZ, where we share the songs New Zealand loves with the rest of the world. Let's get it behind the minds that make the music. Episode 2, Nigel Russell. Just like that, yeah. <laughs> hey, so yeah, this is uh, you're the second guest, so I'm no good at this. Now, of course, in my Zero episode, which is my introduction of myself... Yeah. <clears throat> I heard that. Oh, yeah, did you hear that promo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. you were in it. I know. And so that's why it was kind of important that I kind of get, kind of get, kind of get around to it, eh? And now um. you know why I'm, I get nervous and silly around you. Oh. And over chatty. Now oh. you know. <laughs> so this is a real easy format. I, I want to know uh, I want to know from the start. <laughs> uh, born and bred in Christchurch and emigrated to Auckland in 69, 70. So I've spent most of my life in Auckland. Oh, yeah. Because I'm <clears throat> old now. Yeah, we all are. That's why I sort of started the uh, <laughs> uh, this yeah. thing up. Get us, get us while you can. Yeah, well, I, it started as an, a need to be um, valuable. And then um, then Josh just came in as the first interview and was like, oh, hell, this is all very modern. So I'm going for what I'm calling lifers. Leg- legacy. Legacy and the future. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm alternating them. So I already didn't know you were from Christchurch. So you would have been pretty young though coming up and yeah um nine or ten years old yeah and i am interested in the sound you were growing up with what were you hearing around the house and things what's the crumbs nothing nothing come on right you know that sort of stuff the The um, tv tv uh, my dad was into classical music, right? Um, and was a, you know was into um, um, leader, you know, unaccompanied uh, piano accompanied singing, you know. Oh <clears throat> gosh, yeah, all oh, this bit of life. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so yeah, that was kind of it, really. Wow. Yeah. And so you arrive here at 10, 10 and 12, sort of getting into... More 19, yeah. Yeah, so 12 yeah. is when you're really getting into stuff? Starting to, yeah, yeah. And what are you hearing? Uh, well, you know, uh, Beatles, you know, a lot of all that sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, early 70s sort of pop stuff as well, you know, the uh, bubblegum, yeah. you know, uh, Beatles, you know, T-Rex, that kind of stuff, you know. And so do you hear... Obviously, the punk thing's coming up. Do you hear that in real time? Or are you- no, no. Well, I ended up at Selwyn College, which is one of the, was one of the more um, liberal schools, I suppose. I mean, it was a, a co-educational place, um, and was a you know a lot more lot more free thinking, shall we say, than um, say Auckland Grammar or or some of the others, you know. Yeah. So um, yeah. Uh, you know, did music there, and by that stage, I guess we were kind of listening to, you know, all sorts of stuff. You know, Roxy music, Stones. You know, all all of that. You know, I mean, I think I, the first concert I think I saw at school was um, was Dragon in 1973, doing the doing their first album. You know, they were Flash straight away. Yeah, I know. It was, it was the, the, the Hunter Brothers. The Hunter Brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've sort of got some key questions I've already forgotten to ask. Oh, anything we get too nerdy, I'm going to cut to the end as an extra special bit so you can yeah, get yeah. as nerdy Bo- as you want. Bonus, 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 nerd. Deep, 
nerdy tech stuff. Um, so don't be afraid. Um, I wanted to know when we were skipping along there, the song that really affected you. My one was I Feel Love as a Child. And then it was your car crash set as an adult, which made me... What, what are your versions of that? What was the one... Or were you saying you weren't hearing much as a kid? It wasn't till... No, yeah. So any, you know, what was the one that flipped you? What was the Oh, one? God. I don't know. No strong No, no I mean... Virginia Plain. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole... There's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things, you know. I mean, the, the the whole New York New York scene too was was covered a lot by a magazine called Rock Scene, right. which we used to we used to see here, and that was covering things like you know television and Blondie and yeah. you know um, all that early CBGB stuff. Yeah, you know. I wonder how long CBGB really existed for. It's one of those ones where it's probably a smaller window than we realise. No, it went a lot went a lot lot, lot longer. But, it wasn't um, always that scene. No, it's right. I mean, yeah. the scene changed around. It's no. a it's a jean shop now. Oh, it's or, or something. Yeah. yeah. You of course come on the radar for most of us with spelling mistakes. Yeah. And so, are you still at school? Just out. Just out. Basically, punk hit seventy six, seventy seven for us here. And um, I mean, one of the real ground zero moments I think was the Dolan Tate um, thing on. Um, TVNZ and mm. he was in the UK covering something else and then um, also sort of covered the, the whole punk rock thing that was going down and um, we had an approach, I think I was the chairman of the social committee or something like that when I was in the sixth form and we had an approach from um, the guy who was managing the, the scavengers to do lunchtime concert and um, gave us tickets to Zwine's and uh, went and checked that out, and sort of, you know, that was that was it really. From there on, we were we were there as often as we could get there, and and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, the lunchtime concert went down very well. And sub in subsequent years, we organised uh, toy love tearaways to to do lunchtime shows there as well. At the school. At the school, yes. So what's Zwines? When you said Zwines, you lost me. Oh, you don't know. You don't know about Zwines. Yeah, I'm not from this town. Oh, okay. Well, Zwines was pretty much ground zero. Well, no, actually, it wasn't. It was there were there were a couple of other venues prior to it, but it was pretty much ground zero for Auckland punk, and it was above uh, it's the old Bluestone Room, oh, in, yes. yep. which you would probably know. Yeah. The first first floor of that. It had been a it had been clubs over the years. But um, uh, so you had to go along Durham Lane West or something, and then um, around the back of the back of the His Majesty's Theatre. But you also had to run the gamut of Disco D'Ora, which was downstairs. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was sort of running past that and up the alley to avoid getting punched out by the by the by the guys downstairs, you know, who weren't that keen on punks. Oh God, um, it's quite a shifty little corner too, isn't it? It's, yeah, but tr um, bit tricky. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, it wasn't a licensed venue, so there was no no problem with underage and all the rest of it. So they had, they'd had bands like, um, I mean, Scavengers were the resident band there, you know, the Idle Idols, um, uh, you know, who began the Tearaways, you know, um, etc. What is that compilation? AK-79? Yeah, AK-79, again, was... Um, a, a, a real sort of line in the sand, as it were. Absolutely, it, it was um, one of the first. It was the first in, indie record, and it basically was a snapshot of essentially '78. Uh, most of those bands were active, and um, the original release was um, Tearaways, Scavengers, uh, Swingers, Primers. I think all had two tracks. So it wasn't a flying nun originally. No, 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 no. It was it was Ripper Records. It was started by Brian Staff and Sean Doe. So basically, the idea was that I think was to um, you know record a couple of tracks and then use what was generated from that to then you know sit, you know do more records. Yeah, cool. Just as you as you should in the punk <clears throat> era. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Because um, is it Rena? That's hilarious. Yeah. You yeah. just, you know, literally laughing out loud like it was. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it, it's, um, it's a personality driven song, shall we say? And yeah. there there were quite a few dis personality songs of that period. Right, yeah. 
I mean, the Scavengers classic, um, Mr. X, was written about <clears throat> Mac Lesbian, their lead singer who'd left to become a nine to fiver social climber. Um, Proud Scum, Jump Off Grafton Bridge, or Suicide 2, was written about John Atrocity, the guitarist who decided he was going to leave the band. Okay. <laughs> um, Rena was written about someone and they, they didn't like it. And so um, we were threatened uh, with violence, etc. And so changed. So whenever we used to play, the name would change and, you know, who wants to be it tonight? Right. And then we didn't set the, we didn't set the, the, the name. And then uh, when Brian wanted to release it, we had to fix on some on something, and um, it became Reno. Oh, because there is an energy to the to the hating it. <laughs> <laughs> it works so well. Yeah, well, it's also it's it's also on um, bigger than both of us, right? Which is the um, propeller compilation, yep. which came a couple of years later, and I had it on reasonably good authority. The copy that was at BFM at the time basically had a diagonal line through it. Not a, not, not a line that followed the, the, the grooves, but right. one right across the middle of it, so oh, nice. you, you could not possibly play it. Wow. Sabotage. Oh, I love yeah. that. <laughs> you were doing spelling mistakes in that 79, 79. Yeah, so I had a, I had a band at school, and um, we played out a couple of times, and one of the times we played out was at HQ Rock Cafe, which was on Upper Queen Street, open, and open for the spelling mistakes. And when the bass player from the band quit, um, they offered me the job. And, right. yeah, so I took that. And you've been playing bass for how long now? <clears throat> Badly for mm, 35, 40 years. Oh, no, I meant at that point. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like, it must have been only a couple. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, about a year. Right. You know, yeah. And how long did that last? Uh, about two, two, about two years. I think we went through '79 through late '80, '81. I think it was. You moved pretty seamlessly into yeah, yeah, reasonably. I mean, basically, the band imploded. I mean, we had um, we'd inherited the boot boy, boot girl following right. uh, after proud, proud scum had left and gone to Australia, and. It was a mixed blessing. Uh, <clears throat> the blessing was you had a crowd every time you played, but the, the mixed part was they'd usually smash the venue up and intimidate everybody else and, you know, etc. Because there's a sort of a drug scene to, to punk that, again, as a small-town kid, you don't quite know if what's real and stuff like that because you're just school kids at this point. Mm, it wouldn't be... Yeah, well, I mean, that's that, that was also at the height of the Mr. Asia thing. Yeah. So, I mean, heroin was... Was, around. was around, and in fact, I was actually at the Swines one night with some guy who died and died. So it was real. Oh yeah, oh very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, but not affecting sort of your school age kids too much. No, it's not, just what those. Not really. Not that I'm aware of anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the the whole again, again, the Mister Asia thing was, you know, heroin and and uh, you know Thai Buddha, mm. and it was you know good weed at the time. Yeah. So. It went either way. Yeah. So you're just trying to lose those boot boys, are you? Well, basically, what happened? We 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 were basically banned from every venue oh. in Auckland. Yeah. So we, you know, you played, you couldn't go back essentially. So there was, I believe, we'd actually heard too that the Auckland team police had sent out a letter to all of the pub owners um, saying that if we were engaged either under our name or any other name, we might potentially they might potentially lose their licence. Wow. So it came to a point where all we could play was either gigs we organised ourselves or uh, Main Street or uh, Excess, which was another which was another unlicensed venue. So um, basically wound it up. That's weird. Yeah. And the, and just to even be the police to even be aware of it is Yeah, well the police presence was fairly heavy back then too. Um you know, it was it's not the not the not the police that we know and love these days. Right. And was there also a bit of imagery coming from the UK that this is needs to be stamped out and it's a you know, a bit of media crap? Mm, don't think so. I think it just it you know, it just They did wreck the place. Yeah. yeah. It, well literally, yeah. yeah. I mean, um our, our first headline gig at the station hotel uh, and station hotel front doors were sort of oh, two and a half, three metre 
uh, you know, stay, uh, you know, what do you call it, reinforced glass doors. All right. Well, reinforced glass doors only last a yeah. little while. Yeah, God. <laughs> oh, no. There's not, you, know, you wonder why these venues disappear. Yeah. They get slowly chipped away. Yeah, it. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that and the demolition ball, you know. Yeah, God. Yeah. Um, so we are now, what, we're now in 1980? Yeah, 8081. Um, so when does Joy Division hit your radar? About that time, you yeah. Know, we were, I mean, we were we were getting that sort of stuff on, you know, import and all the rest of it, and um, yeah, Unknown Pleasures was a was a very strong album. Yeah. Well, it was, well, I mean, it was that, and there was a few of you know, I mean, magazine, um, uh, basically that 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 sort of post punk, you know, yeah. the sound, um, concert angels, all that sort of stuff. It sort of seeps in and it comes out. I'd been doing some singing uh, at, at university. I was in the university singers doing music there, or had been doing music, and that was a prerequisite. You had to be, you know, in one of the two choirs. So I thought, well, I'll give that a nudge. And another friend from primary school had a band called the Cadets, and they were looking for a singer. So I um, went, went and tried out that, and... That became Dance Macabre. Because you do your front man very comfortably. Is that something you. you had to build? Did you sort of... Um, I'd, I'd, I'd been involved in musical theatre through through school. And, um, yeah, so it wasn't too big, a, too big a leap. Right. Yeah. You just sort of gird your loins and get on with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because I love some of the old videos, and you know, you're really nailing the front man thing, and it's just like, that seems proper. Well, there you go. That's proper. Thank you. So when, do the, when does the electronics sort of... Well, about then, too. Um, um, I had an interest in synthesis right through, you know, it had, I guess, had heard things like Tomita and um, Switched on Bark and, you know, the Wendy Carlos stuff, mm. and um, then... Uh, you know, Autobahn, uh, Autobahn, of course, was was huge. Was a huge hit. About eighty one, it would seem that you could either buy a guitar, and or get. You know, you didn't really have to know anything. You know, it was, mm. it was very much make it up as you went along. Um, and around the same time, you had um, the 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 price of some of that electronic stuff was starting starting to come down and. So you had um, bands like Human Le- the early version of Human League, mm-hmm. um, The Normal, um, um, Daniel Miller, um, Thomas Lear, um, who were... Um, so it almost it was as if you could either buy a guitar or buy a synth and create your own thing, and it kind of diversified yeah. at that point. But it was still had a very DIY ethic to it. Yeah. You know? No, I... Sort of was. I'm 100% electronic, so it was like. Or once I heard Kraftwerk, it was like, oh, yeah, that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, first synth I bought was um, an electronic dream plant wasp. <clears throat> oh. And the wasp was, um, and this was part of the whole sort of egalitarianism of of synthesis, I guess. It was an English thing, and it was the first synthesizer that you could buy that was 199 pound. Everything else was sort of had been, you know, five, six, seven hundred, hundred quid, yeah. and um, it was a two oscillator synth with um, some good modulation possibilities and things. And it also, rather than a keyboard, it had a touch strip which, which was painted like a keyboard. Oh, yes. The way it was built, it was just one great big circuit board, and the keyboard part was actually part of the circuit board. Um, so it was simple. To, it had been it was very simple to make. Oh. It was pretty t- um, plasticky. You know, it used to run on batteries. Had a little speaker built into it as well, so you could take it anywhere. And um, quite quite sophisticated for what it was. Oh. But um, yeah, I, I bought that at an auction. Some a music shop in Gisborne had shut down. Brit's share of music, and they moved everything up to Auckland and had a, had a big fire sale and sold it all there, and I bought that there, and it was all on from there on. That's amazing. I have no idea. I think I've seen something similar with a sort of a strip and a key yeah, and a, and a trigger almost instead of your finger. 
Yeah, that was a bit of stylophone, the, the Rolf Harris thing. Okay, so Dance Macabre did quite well. I remember in the student world there, that was sort of... Yeah, I mean, we... Um, we basically burned very brightly for a very short time, shall we say. Went for about two years. And um, we did an EP and started work on an album. But the band broke up midway through the recording of the album. So it was kind of... Well, the record company decided to sort of uh, release it as a mini-album to um, recoup what had been spent and try and, um, you know... Make something of it. Where were you recording all that? Um, Mandrill. Right. So the studio du jour was was Harlequin. Right. And um, we did some demos at Harlequin. And um, then Trevor Riki had returned to New Zealand in about 81. And he was working for, worked for a label called... Old, um, well, he had Stun and started Reaction Records, right. and was looking for local um, bands to do put on put, put through on Reaction, and um, Reaction was um, kind of like a house label at Mandrill. They weren't initially interested, but Trevor persevered, and um, yeah, we went on and did um, Between the Lines and Last Request. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was kind of a um, that relationship then carried on into the next into the next thing, incarnation as well. Right, which is car crash. Crash it, yeah. And so that just sort of is. How do you end a band in the middle of an album? <laughs> just somebody leaves, or got fired. Oh, uh, yeah, or leaves. Yeah. So um, yeah, basically it was uh, it was kind of uh, it. You know, as I said, it, it, it burnt very brightly and very intently, and um, it was a um, yeah, it was just a parting of the ways, shall we say? Well, for a long time, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, fast forward to um, two thousand and eight, and we did a we reformed and did a did a show. Uh, this is Macabre. Did a did a show at at uh, King's Arms, and then. In 2013, did it again with Penknife Glides because they wanted to do a show. So they said, oh, would you reform and, you know, play with us as well? So we did. And as a result of that, Wes, who was the guitarist and the principal songwriter in Macabre, um, he and I continue to make music to this day. There you go. So we've sort of come a full circle. Wow, that's amazing. So we have a we have a, a project called DM Redux. I love it. Yeah. Oh, well, um, well, that's good to know that they're cooking along. And Car Crash, it was almost a, an experiment of... Well, yeah, that came after... Um, uh, what am I missing? Running under all of this, my, my day job was working in a music shop. I started in music in uh, music wholesale, sort of behind the scenes, working for a strip for a, a guy who was importing Roland at that stage, yeah, cool. into New Zealand, and a few other brands. And they had left him, and it started working at, at Kingsley Smith Music down in the bottom of Auckland, down on Customs Street. I and think I've met you there as a child. That is probably where you did. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a real hub. That was that was the that was the the rock shop of the day. It was the, it was the cool shop. Um, and we had a lot of lot of stuff, and a lot of people would come through, and and um, I was selling synthesizers, right? Because they were that was the you know everything that was really cooking at that stage, and um, at I, we hooked up with a with a guy called Nick Jenkins and Dave, and jammed around, got some songs together, did some did some early did three demos at Progressive Studios. Which was in Anzac Ave, which was run by Terry King, who was a guy who had done front of house or sound for Dance Macabre and spelling mistakes actually. Wow. We had gave gave some tracks to Propeller. Simon put one of, one of the tracks on um, a compilation from 1982 called "We'll Do Our Best," and um, then Nick. Uh, announced he was he was moving back to the UK 
So it was kind of like, oh. Um, then Dave approached me and he'd booked some time at um, a studio called Genesis and he'd had an idea for a, a track. So he said, come on, come on, let's go and sort this out. And that became Fall From Grace. Wow. Um, so we started recording that at Genesis, took that to Trevor, finished it off at Mandrill and then did a deal there where we were basically signed to the house label, signed up half of our publishing away to that and that meant that we could use the studio during downtime. Wow, cool. So, you know, that was after hours and weekends essentially. And, um, you know, I mean, in, in terms of the owner of the studio, Glenn, it, w- it wasn't a big investment. All he had to do was pay the wages for the engineer and um, tape costs and, and electricity. Yeah. And um, But we basically had the run of a, of a full 24-track tape studio. Wow. That's um, a joy. Yeah, it was. Because, <laughs> you know, because that... Yeah, it has got that feeling that there's some production going on. and, and Yeah, well, that was, I mean, and the, the, the fact was we weren't, you know, because we weren't paying for it um, at the front end, you weren't watching the clock and mm. going, oh, shit, this is costing us two or three, you know, two or three hundred dollars a day or whatever the yeah. rate was. Yeah, and yeah. we could go, hmm, well, I wonder what this sounds like if we tape this this uh, Oratone monitor over a snare drum and pump some some <laughs> signal through that. What sort of noise will that make? Wow, yeah. And, you know, Real stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because... Um, you quite casually go over um, quite a few studio names, and it's sort of like a lot of these have uh, I've never heard of, and mm-hmm. it's, you know they're all pretty much gone, aren't they? Like yeah, they all they all have. Yeah, yeah. what's left now? Sort of roundhead. Yeah, true. Um, That's very fancy. Yeah, um, Stebbings. Stebbings have always been there. Yeah, well, it's a mystery to me in that building. I've never, I don't think I've ever been in. I just see the neon. Worth a ticky tour if you get if you get time. Well, Stebbings was it was basically you know has been there since Adam was in shorts, and um, but around that there were again you know as the, as as the cost of technology became cheaper, um, you know there was um, uh, Harlequin Studios would, had originally started in Mount Eden Road, and then they set up a sort of a state of the art room in Albert Street on the corner just. Long gone, been a car park now for 25 years. Um, Mandrill, similar sort of thing. That had started um, mid-70s in Parnell and um, that uh, moved to, to a bigger facility as well, and again, staying in Parnell, um, when Graham Meyer and Lynch um, came back from the UK. Yeah, they were all partners with Glenn. Glenn had been in, you know, sixties band, the Gremlins, and you know, um, I think Graham had worked with Tony Visconti, and um, Mr. Lynch had been working with Cat Stevens and wow. and people like yeah. that. So, you know, all all very all very big to big time, you know. Yeah. Um. So though, so Harlequin and Mandrill were the two big rooms in Auckland at that stage and um, Harlequin did a lot of the propeller stuff uh, so things like the Mimi's, Blam's albums were all done there um, whereas Mandrill you know, Hello Sailor yeah. oh and actually Sailor album was done at um, was done at uh, Stebbings, Stebbings yeah it? yeah and, and the dudes as well because Ian was one of the engineers, Ian Morris was one of the engineers at Stebbings oh Okay, so you you have started working in music retail. Is this parallel with university or no? No, no, I I bailed the university after after eighteen months at uni. So um, did went into as I say music wholesale, and then did a year or two of that, and then transed into into retail, and that's basically. How, what I still do today. All right, yes, of course. Um, this kind of thing. I was thinking before, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, how many bits did you get from me? Yeah, well, yeah. I, that's why I come to you. It's yeah, just yeah. like, I can't yeah. be bothered. It's like going to a record store where someone's already choosing records yeah. for you. It's yeah. like, it's already done. All yeah. the crap's been washed away. They yeah. didn't drag Sorted it. Sorted through the chaff. Yeah, mm. and um, I very much appreciate it. So you, when do you feel like you pulled out a recording? Basically, Car Crash Set went for... Shit, what do we do? We went from about 82, 83 through to 87. Um, 
midway through that, Dave decides to do his OE. And um, he's working in London and says, oh, look, send me over the master tape, the the, the two-inch tapes for one of these tracks. And uh, so we'd already done an album by that stage. We'd been working on a new on on some new tracks, and so we sent the the two inches to Dave. He went to Blackwing Studios in London, nice. who were the house studio for Four AD, pretty much. And um, we did. He remixed or mixed the track with a guy called John Fryer, who'd done you know the Small Coil and all these all these people, and. His mixing style was pretty interesting. Apparently, only used to would work in thirty-second segments of a track, and then chuck it all together. And the first track that came back, um, East and West, was just jaw-dropping. It was, you know, it it had gone away as one thing and come back as something completely different. Wow! So we ended up sending the remaining tracks that we had right. across, and John did the rest of them for us. And that became our um, our another day EP, which came out of, um, and then we were working on some more tracks and did some supports in Auckland for Shriekback. The second time they came through, a friend of ours who was a label A and R guy at festival, um, who was also looking after Shriekback, um, invited them along to one of our sessions. So we had the drummer, the guitarist, and the backing vocalists come in and add tracks and then the whole lot went back to the UK John mixed it again and that's where it stopped so it never it never never saw it never was released until recently until until relatively recently and the band just kind of just kind of ground to a halt really it's you know uh, there was no sort of big, uh, you know, bust up or anything like that. And at that stage, Trevor, Trevor had been out. We'd invited him to play guitar on the on one of the on the second track we recorded at Mandrill, and he'd been in the, in the band right through. And um, he was running Pagan Records by that stage, and had a young signee, a band called This Boy Rob which was a two-piece, which had Greg Johnson. And uh, they did an EP, and then Greg had a, a, a bass player called John, who was uh, he was in the TV industry, I think, and decided that he wanted to carry on with that. So Greg was kind of at a loose end. So Trevor introduced us and himself, and we nabbed Joost Langwald, who had been... Play, had played in a previous band with Greg and we became the Greg Johnson set. So, um, yeah, I played with Greg for did two albums, two and, a, two and a half albums, shall we say. And how does a one-fingered synth player involve themselves with a... Oh, well, you just, you wing it. You wing it. <laughs> you know, yeah. just do what we did. Yeah, I, I, I've done the same. I yeah, can't. yeah, exactly. One-handed. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I've played on things like Isabel and you know some of the, some of those things. Yeah, he seems a dedicated uh, lover of the craft of song. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. He's he's dedicated his life to it, mm. and um, you know he's, uh, it's a job, and he he works at works at that art, you know. Yeah, no, you've got to yeah. bow to that. God, yeah, yeah. So um, I basically left that halfway through Vine Street Stories. I think I played on one track on that or something. Yep. And um, again, it was kind of a... Um, by that stage, I'd settled down a little bit. I had a proper proper day job and um, we had a, I had our, our first child, Jasper. And um, yeah, I think that Greg was also making plans for a move to Australia and having seen what happened with bands that go to Australia, I figured, no, nah, it was probably time to time to move on. Yeah. I didn't tell you that we, we, CCS still continues to this day. See, that's why we need to know about future stuff. Uh, due to the wonders of the internet, um, we were approached um, in the mid-2000s by a German label 
and a, a young guy who was into electronica who had a, a label who had a copy of our first single, loved it, wanted to know if we had anything else and, could, you know, particularly the early stuff, demos, etc., and could he release it. And, and do you have those tapes? Well, we, we, we rummaged around, dug some, dug some stuff up, sent them to him, and um, he created a compilation from that wow. uh, called Welcome to the Car Crash Set, which is the last line of Warm Leatherette, ah, the, uh, the B-side of TVOD by The Normal, wow. which was pretty much ground zero for um, DIY electronica. That is a piece of... That's a key piece right there. Welcome there to the car crash set. It all makes perfect sense. The car the crash set. So this is on a German label called Anna Log. Oh, yes. And um, he released that as a limited edition. Did, I think he pressed up 500 and uh, sold out. He's since done a second run of it. <laughs> and then he put out a, um, an... Uh, a uh, APB to his artists um, saying that he was going to maybe do a compilation release for the, the, the label's 10th anniversary and would anybody like to donate a track or you know old or new and um, Dave contacted me and said oh, I've got you want to start jamming again so see what we can come up with so we started doing that oh. and um we now have a project called CCS, as in S-I-S-I-E-S. <laughs> yes, yes it is, in Spanish. Um, and um, so we have, a, again, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours worth of jam stuff. Um, we've done a release la end of last year, um, just a, a very limited run vinyl. Um, sold a few to, to pay for the for the ones that we've given to people, and uh, we have our next release on the way, which is a, a four tracker. Oh, cool! Um, with the with the jam stuff, we've basically given it to friends to untangle, for want of a better description. So, first EP, first record, we had um, a mix done by Nick Rowan, who was formerly of the Skeptics and bail to space and things like that um, and Nick's done some more for this new record and then the B side was uh, or the other side was a mix by Jed Town Fetus Productions yeah. and um, so the next record is is all Nick mixes and the next one after that could be a Christian one, if you want. That's right. I was just thinking, oh, I can get my hands on those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If anyone hasn't seen the photos, we'll get them. But your space in at Oceania Audio Sales is quite a um, legendary space. Now, so when did that collection start? This is the massive 90s digital synthesis collection. Oh, and, and 70s. There's a bit of, oh, true. Oh, yeah, I think the oldest one there is about 72. Uh, um, that happened pretty much 2013. We did a... Second reunion show with Dance Macabre, and um, it was kind of like getting back onto a bike. Mm. You know, the, the interesting thing, I guess, with with playing in a band is you never it, the, the interpersonal relationships and the um, the way a band plays and things is is something that you never really shake. And I mean, spelling mistakes have done. Reformed and did a show in to God, nineteen ninety nine. I think it was was oh. the, was the first time, first one we did, and because um, we had a live tape from from the, the last show that we ever did, so we could remember the songs. And Warwick, the guitarist, transcribed everything. And um, once we started playing, it's just yeah, yeah. It sort of takes one rehearsal, and just it's kind of like the uh, what's the word? Um, the muscle memory comes back, mm. and um, yeah, it all just kind of gels. And the the two or the three or the four people that make up the thing, uh, it, it can never be. It can if, if you change any aspect of that, you know, say you, say you take the drummer out and put somebody else in, it changes. Mm. But it when it's when it's when it's in its, in its, still in its original form, it. It's like getting on a bike again. It's like you know, it's uh, 
uh, yeah, it all come back. Right, amazing. So the same thing happened with Macabre. We we got together again, did some sh- um, did some did the show. Bass player moved back, went back to South Africa where he lives, and the three of us that were still resident here kind of went, well, we, that was quite fun. Why don't we just carry on and see what else we can come up with? Right. And um, by that stage, I had a, a few synths at that stage, and it just kind of went from there, really. So we carried on as a three, just you know, having a weekly jam and, you know, with no, no prerequisites. It was a sort of a case of, Having a couple of beers and okay, what a he's a he's a bit of a beat and mm. we're in D minor tonight, guys. Off we go and see what happens. And right. due to the the wonders of modern technology, we're able to record everything wow. that we've done. That's been a kind of a weekly fixture or bi-weekly or monthly fixture mm. now for since then, so seven years. Awesome. Um, so I've got I've got days and days and days and days <laughs> and days of recordings. <laughs> Um, some good, some not so good, you know. That's what you do, you go through that's them. That's what you do. And so um, that's kind of how that's rekindled my interest in electronica and electronic instruments. And um, I've just kept an eye, you know, things like Trade Me and stuff like that, I've kept an eye out. And of course, you you know, you kind of know what things are or some people don't know what things are and yeah. things are often offered as broken when they're not and, you know, so on and so forth. So. Yeah. So, hunt. so for the yeah, it's kind of the hunt, and that's yeah, you know. No, I was sort of trying to get a focus on on how what your what Oceania Audio Sales. It's your sort of overview of what what because it's it's all the nice stuff. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of um, kind of how I see it. It, it is um, um, audio tools for the discerning. Mm, yes, it is. <laughs> and um, sometimes the ones who are slightly more professional can afford. Yeah, but it's also it, it, it's also gear that I would be, you know, if, if I was record, you know, doing it full time um, and making records and stuff like that, it was stuff that I would I would want to use myself. So it's it's, it's so consequently, I mean, when I when I started Oshi, um they went they were it's basically a sound rental company, and they were dabbling with sales. As the company was growing, they were looking to buy more more equipment and buy equipment at the best price. And you know, it, it sort of got to a point where they would turn around and go, "Well, if you want, if you're ordering this much, do you think you could sell some for us in New Zealand?" And mm. so you'd pick up you pick up an agency for for a couple of brands. And um, they sent me to a trade show in London in 1994 because we had become distributor for a couple of English brands at that stage. And at the show, um, I discovered a couple of brands there. One of them was, was Octava Microphones, which was a, a Russian condenser microphone, um, which prior to that, um, condenser mics had always been very expensive. Um, and this was something that was a large diaphragm recording microphone which was under a thousand dollars which was unheard of at the time so um i secured the line for new zealand and it just kind of developed from there um my focus became i guess more recording orientated yes you know you just kind of network and as you 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 see things that you think oh yeah i'd I'm interested in it, so somebody else might be, you know, might be able to use it and so on. But um, you riff from there. Yeah, because I was thinking it's you're sort of more future proof now as there is a boutique audio industry around the world now. Oh, there very are, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, you know, two people doing it. Yeah, yeah, um, and and guys, it, it's with some of the different formats of of gear, you know, like. Um, uh, you have a, a thing called 500 series, mm. which is um, you buy a uh, what they call a lunchbox, which is a, a common a box which has a power supply and inputs and outputs. And into that you can fit modules, and modules can be preamps or compressors or EQs or delays or, or et cetera. And um, the beauty of it is that every time you buy a piece of kit, it'll just slot into the slot. Mm. And it's um, you're not you know having to buy a power supply again and a and a box and, a, and connectors and all the rest of it that would come with 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 a piece of kit and it's also a very small form factor, yeah. but it's also enabled a lot of um, boutique guys or guys with with a slightly wackier idea than you know than uh, they, you know, 
to enable them to sell stuff that they might only sell hundreds of rather than thousands or hundreds yeah. of thousands, you know. Yeah. So um, I need to know what piece of music that you feel that you're involved with you're most proud of because I'm going to end on it. Um, uh, probably the, uh, I think probably one of the first, the, the first CCS, the first cargo set thing. Um, this, for this podcast, who should I be? Uh, you should have a chat to Alan Jensen. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Alan's uh, Body Electric. And they were contemporaries of ours in the early electronica thing. Um, yeah, or Nick Rowan, actually. Yeah. Here's a story. Alan was, when, when he was in the Body Electric, was driving back to Wellington after doing shows in uh, Auckland. And Loss uh, had a, uh, fell asleep at the wheel, I think, and had a fairly horrible accident on the way back. Oh, God. And we sent him a telegram wishing him the best and it was you know, get well soon and welcome to the car crash scene <laughs> <laughs> we've been we've been great dear friends ever since <laughs> oh, that's a good oh, well, that's a good place to end I'm glad I got this down have you got anything you want to say what are you trying to push no you know no peace and tolerance that's right God yeah